Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. Well, it's a welcome back from me after my holiday for the last two weeks. Here I am ready to catch up with all the news from the markets and the investment trust sector. This week, exceptionally, the podcast is appearing at the start of the week, although we will be back to the normal timetable of a Saturday afternoon release for the next episode. Thanks to my colleague Stuart Watson for standing in while I was away. Did I miss much other than the start of the ashes, the collapse of Odi Asset Management, and Boris Johnson's proposed suspension from Parliament? Well, the Investment Trust Index finished last week on a 15.5% discount, which is pretty much where it was two weeks ago, before I left on holiday, while the index itself last week was down 0.4% and remains down 1.5% year-to-date. No sign so far of a reversal of the derating that we've seen over the last many months. Last week was, however, a positive week for the equity markets, led by the Nikkei 225 index in Japan, which was up 4.5%, while the all-world index rose 2.6%, similar return from the S&P 500. The American-US bull market recovery, fueled by a small number of big tech stocks, continues. Meanwhile, the ECB raised interest rates by a quarter of 1%, with the promise of more increases to come. Further rate rises are also something which the markets are now coming to think will also be following from the Federal Reserve and more certainly the Bank of England after the publication not so long ago of the latest really rather shocking inflation figures for the UK. It's true that the UK GDP did grow by 0.2% in April, scotching or perhaps postponing fears that the UK would be in recession by now. But the economic outlook remains distinctly poor for the UK at this point, facing a combination of rising interest rates, slowing growth and inflation that is not yet under control. Those movements in interest rate expectations were reflected in the bond markets where in the UK, while a small number of longer dated index linked gilts saw their prices edge up a little bit, for most gilts the direction of travel was in the opposite direction. Every single gilt issued by the UK government is now trading on a yield of more than 4%, making it a very tempting alternative to other riskier assets. It also helped to push the pound up a little further to around 128 against the dollar, while the yen continued to decline. Commodities were up slightly over the week, though gold remained pretty much flat. Notable that volatility has come down, which may have something to do with the continued upward movements in equity prices across the board. And certainly those equity market moves were reflected in the behaviour of some individual trusts within the investment trust universe. With commercial property and infrastructure trusts, two sectors which are most obviously impacted by rising bond yields, shares in those two sectors were marked down heavily on fears of those higher interest rates, while Japanese and Chinese investment trusts were notable among those topping the list of price rises. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Nick Greenwood, the manager of the MIGO Opportunities Trust, always a popular figure with this audience, about some of the things he's been thinking and doing in the last few weeks. 
and then to another long-standing friend and colleague of mine, Marion Somerset-Webb, the long-serving editor until last year of Money Week magazine, and now a columnist and podcaster for Bloomberg. We talk about both the investment trust sector and what the options facing private investors are when it comes to accessing the things that the investment trust sector has on offer. Turning to results, so we've had a number of well-known trusts producing their final results. They included Personal Assets, ticker PNL, the Defensively Minded Investment Trust, which states its objective as being to preserve and grow the real value of its clients' money in that order. Well, over the past 12 months, their NAVP share was a disappointment against that particular objective of not losing value, with the NAV per share down 2.2%. The NAV total return of minus 0.9% was just shy of 7% below the 6% total return available from the FTSE All Share Index. And also, of course, fell some way short of inflation, which came in at 11.4% over its reporting period, the 12 months to the end of April. Personal assets remains very much in defensive mode, with some 76% liquidity at the end of the year and a lower slug of risk assets than it's had for a long time. It is, however, paying a special dividend of 2.1p in July alongside its first quarterly 1.4p dividend for the 2023-24 year. The manager, Sebastian Lyon, described it as a dull year for returns and that is a sentiment that perhaps might have been echoed by some of the other trusts reporting this week. That would certainly include Linsell Train Investments, ticker LTI, managed by Nick Train and Mike Linsell, a trust whose main asset is its holding in Linsell Train's investment management business. Not for the first time, this trust reported little or no trading activity during the year. It's very much a buy and hold strategy, though the fund managers did add to a small amount to one of their newest holdings, Laurent Perrier. The NAV total return for the year was uh, minus 0.4%, so basically flat, and the share price return was mildly positive against a benchmark which was down 1% over the year. The dividend yield for this one for the year was 4.89%, based on the dividend being increased by 0.7%, but in the absence of a special dividend this year, as no performance fee was earned from the management company. Turning to Templeton Emerging Markets, ticker TEM, which again had a very dull year, NAV total return 0.8%. That was, however, ahead of the benchmark, which was down 4.5%, but follows what was a very poor year the year before. So definitely an improvement there, but no real positive return. Final dividend there is going to be 5p. But this trust is not particularly known, like most investment trusts, for its strong dividend-paying capacity. Over at Bailey Gifford UK Growth, ticker BGUK. The NAV total return there was 1.1% positive, uh, which again was an underperformance of the 6% return by the All Share Index over the year to the end of April 2023, but obviously a massive improvement on the previous year when this trust, which operates in the UK all companies sector, uh, was adversely affected by the significant derating of growth stocks. The managers reported that style headwinds were again the biggest factor in the underperformance, but they remain committed to their style of investing, which was reflected in the fact that there's very little turnover here also in the portfolio, uh, 5% only during the course of the 12 months. 
Meanwhile, at Syncona, the Sciences Investment Trust, it's backed by the Wellcome Trust, ticker SYNC. There, the NAV total return was minus 4% the year to the end of March this year. Been a very tough time for biotech and pharma stocks generally, and this was also true in Syncona's case, where it reported that uh, valuation gains in parts of its portfolio and significant uh, currency gains over the course of the year were not enough to offset the decline in the prices of its listed equity holdings. Sigona is trading on a discount of around 20% now. Over at Biotech Growth Trust, meanwhile, ticker BIOG, there the NAV total return for the latest full year was minus 11%, so somewhat worse than uh, Sincona's result. But that compares with a 33.8% negative NAV total return for the previous 12-month period and also compares to a benchmark gain of 5.4%. So the troubles for this particular trust continue. It was, the trust conceded, another difficult year. Uh, the shares in this one, though, ended the year with a slightly narrower discount than uh, that of Sincona at 8.2%, which is interesting because the board took time to uh, reaffirm its commitment to defending a 6% discount for this particular trust, except in from a week-to-week basis, but that is their target, which they're seeking to sustain. Also reporting last week was JLEN Environmental, which uh, announced a 6% increase in its dividend target for the year after reporting an NEV per share up 7%, uh, based mainly on higher gas and electricity price forecasts and inflation linkage in some of its underlying contracts. The prospective yield on this one assuming it meets its 7.57p dividend target for the next financial year, is 6.9% at the current share price of 110p. Turning then for final result announcements to Custodian Property Income Trust, ticker CREI, which is differentiated from some of its peers in the commercial property sector by specialising in smaller lot property investments, that reported NAV total return for its latest financial year down 12.5%, which was somewhat less than the average across the sector. And again, the board here pointed out that the decline in the latest 12-month period followed an increase of 28.4% in the previous 12-month period. So this has been a very volatile ride for commercial property trusts, as we know, with the impact of rising bond yields being a significant factor in the latest reporting period. The company said that earnings per share of 5.6p were down slightly on the previous year from 5.9p, but were comparable to the figure reported in the year before that. And the chairman said that, in his view, valuations appear to have stabilised and tracking the sustainable income potential of commercial property trust was a more realistic way of measuring their performance. The discount on this one is around 10% and it yields 6%. We also had some interim reports from Adrato Onsite Energy and Foresight Sustainable Forestry. More details about this and all the other announcements coming out of the investment trust sector can be found on the Moneymakers Circle website as normal, along with our usual summary of the week's main share price, NAV and discount movements. Last week's fund profile was of Pacific Horizon Trust, and this week you'll be able to read a profile of Polar Capital Global Healthcare Trust. An interesting one to look at at this point, given the way that the pharmaceutical and biotech sectors have sold off, 
Question being, are they now offering good value in relative or indeed absolute terms? So this week on Return from My Holiday, I was able to catch up with Nick Greenwood, the manager of the MIGO Opportunities Trust, this specialist vehicle that invests in out-of-the-way special situations and looks to profit from discount movements in the investment trust sector, as well as some underlying themes. So I've been away, Nick, but I'm not sure that I've missed a great deal. Obviously, the most impressive thing about the market so far this year have been the fact that a number of market equity markets have done quite well, the US in particular, led by a few big stocks. But the investment trust sector is still languishing. The UK equity market has also not done a lot recently. But um, what do you think is going on? The discounts remain very wide, average around 15% across the sector. So there's been no sign of a kind of revival in the fortunes of many investment trusts trading on discounts. No, I mean, we have a structural problem in that we've got an oversupply of, of investment trust shares. Two different things. I mean, a lot of the high yielders that have been launched over the last few years, the demand for those has been undermined by the sharp rise in interest rates that we've seen. You know, if you can get a decent income from a conventional source, like short-dated gilts, for example, why take the risk of, say, having a, an infrastructure fund? And so these things were bought for income in a period where, you know, investors were starved of income. They're certainly not starved of income anymore. And that's undermined the demand in that area. The other thing, which is slow and steady, is that historically, the natural buyers of investment trust were the old-fashioned private client stockbrokers. They've all been consolidated into vast organisations. And you may have seen that Rathbones and Investic are getting together to create a £100 billion portfolio. You know, the direction of travel is is more standardisation. And if, you know, some point in the future, you know, a hundred billion pound pot was in existence. You'd probably need one percent in a portfolio to move the needle, and a hundred billion pound pot—that's a billion pound ticket. So I'm not sure that you know that world will be able to buy many investment trusts in in the future, and therefore you've got this drip drip coming out of the big chains. And again, that's another oversupply situation. And it's not just the fact that these guys are getting together; it's the fact that they're now required pretty much to hold the same portfolio for all their exactly for all their yeah. clients in the same risk yeah. category, anyway. So they have to go big. That isn't necessarily a great prognosis for the sector. It means that some good trusts will remain neglected, I, I guess, unless they do get together with others to create a, a bigger vehicle. Mm. But a bigger vehicle may not be quite so resourceful and successful. Would that be a, a possibility, would you say? I think so. But even if the trusts were, say, 500 million or a billion, the steady consolidation means that you need ever larger trusts, as you say. And um, I think that the risk now is for trusts probably that sort of half a billion size, and maybe up to a billion, who have been comfortably big enough for the wealth management chains up to now, but may not be big enough going forward. Whereas the likes of MIGO, which is sub 100 mil, we've been off the radar for the wealth managers for years. So, you know, we've lived through that. And it's now moving up the market cap scale. I guess looking back historically, we could say that We've been through this process once before when all the uh, pension funds and insurance companies left the investment trust market back in the 80s and 90s. And then we became reliant on the wealth managers, as you say, private client stockbrokers. And now we're reliant as well on retail investors. Do you worry that the retail investor might be put off by the fact that performance of investment trust has been relatively poor over the last 18 months because of this discount factor? No, I think retail investors are reasonably sophisticated and they understand what's going on and will probably see it as an opportunity. Because I guess the opportunity does come also from the fact that if you are an intermediate size investment trust and your board is doing the job it should be doing, you might at some point get taken out at NAV anyway. Mm. You'll therefore yeah. benefit from the discount being closed. Do you think that the boards are doing enough on that score? 
I mean, it's impossible to generalise. Some will be, some won't. I think, you know, the oversupply situation can be resolved in certain ways. You can have mergers, takeouts, as you say. We've already lost Industrials REIT, a mixed light industrials investment trust, which was trading on a 36 discount, like many of the alternatives. Blackstone came in and paid a 3% premium for it. So we're going to see more of that. Buybacks, you know, there's an oversupply, trust can, can buy back shares. So there are ways of dealing with the oversupply and also more appropriate marketing following the, the natural evolution to the, the self-directed investor. You know, the retired company director who reads on a Saturday that my goes the greatest thing instant sliced bread and buys 20 grand's worth on his Hargreaves Lansdowne sip on the Monday morning. I mean, that's probably where the effort should be going because that's a market that does like investment trusts and, you know, that's barely been exploited. And many of them, of course, listen to this podcast. So uh, they'll be among those who are itching to get out there and put their 20 grand to work. Very wise. Let's hope so anyway. In the short term, of course, we have got bond yields actually going up. I thought they would be coming down by now, but they're not. Inflation is very sticky in the UK. Investment trusts, obviously, many of them are global. So do you think in the short term, it'll need that uh, process of bond yields topping out to see some kind of marginal demand coming back in? That will help. But, you know, I think this is a a permanent structural change. So I think the investment trust sector is really good at evolving, as you say. I mean, MIGO shareholders, when we launched 20 years ago, were all city institutions, you know, the likes of the M&G, F&C, a lot of Scottish life companies. Then it went to the wealth managers. And now increasingly, it's the self-directed investor. You know, I've been told many times over the last four decades that the investment trust sector is dying, but we're down to our last 182 billion. So hopefully it will see me out. (laughs) Well, I would hope so too, I think. That would certainly be disappointing if they all disappeared. So the consolidation so far, we've seen, as you said, you mentioned the industrial sector. And recently, we've seen the likes of Aberdeen with the Japanese trust, uh, merging that or folding that, if you like, into another Japanese trust. So that process is just going to continue as far as you're concerned. Is that what you're hearing from the brokers and what you're hearing from the trust themselves? I think we'll lose more plain vanilla trusts that aren't using the capital structure to, you know, I mean, there's pointless if you're running an open-ended fund and a closed-ended fund, they're the same, because all you'd get if you're buying the investment trust is the discount volatility, and it's also difficult to trade. There has to be something different to justify being a closed-ended fund to put up with all that hassle. So I don't see how you get round, you know, if you want to be investing in, in ground rents or uranium or flats in Berlin, illiquid markets, there's any other way but closed-ended. So I think we'll see more of an evolution into the alternatives, although that area is suffering at the moment because so many of them were invented for the high yield. But you can't have open-ended funds in ground rents. Well, you probably can, but we've seen what happens if you have a, a open-ended funds investing in the liquid assets. It, it doesn't end well. Well, let's talk about some of these areas then. Let's start with some of the alternatives. Recently, you've been talking about uh, one or two of the renewable energy trusts where there's some value, you mm. think. I mean, first yeah. of all, I should perhaps add that you say that the uh, discount across your portfolio, before taking into account the share price of your own trust, is pretty much as wide as it's ever been. Perhaps you could Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a slide in the presentation pack which lists the top 12, which historically you know, might. I mean, we're always going to be on discount because we're looking at the unloved and overlooked, but very often has traded on a range of 15 to 25 over the years. In recent months, it's gone straight above that 25 mark, and I think the, the previous presentation pack was 28, and this one's gone straight through the 30 figure, and I think the 31.3 from memory, I think, was the average of the largest 12 holdings in MIGO. So we're into unknown territory with discounts that wide. Well, let's talk then about the renewable energy. What's taken your fancy there, and what differentiates the trusts you do like in that area from those that are you know, also just now trading at a discount like almost all of them are? 
Well, I think our reaction to the widening of discounts is to looking for a sort of an arbitrage because the lack of demand is for the structure. But there are situations, and Aquila Renewables is the only one we've got our complete holding, so it's the only one I can easily talk about, where there's a lot of demand for the underlying assets. So there's an arbitrage there. You know, We managed to pick up some shares, I think, at one point on 22 discount, but we believe that discount understates the true discount. One, because well, it's German managed and very conservative, and therefore they have much shorter asset life assumptions when they're calculating the NAV from the peer group. And if they just moved in line with the peer group, that would add a significant percentage to the NAV. But the other thing is that the, the NAVs tend to take discounted cash flows are quite actuarial in the approach. Nobody actually says, well, if you've got all these um, uh, solar plants in uh, Spain and you've got these wind farms in Scandinavia, what could you get for them if you just put them on the open market and sold them? And I think the answer is significantly more than the, than the stated NAV. So there's an arbitrage here. There's a lot of demand for the underlying assets, but there's no demand for the trust that owns them. Or there's no demand for high-yielding trust or, or a lack of demand, shall we say. So there is an arbitrage there. And you know, those sorts of trusts are quite vulnerable because if you're, you know, you've got assets that are in demand, a bit like mixed-like industrial units we spoke about earlier, there might be a hostile buyer coming along. Indeed. And I would have thought that either that or some consolidation or so on uh, is very likely, I would think. Taking that Aquila one, for example, remind me what kind of yield you get on that one at the moment anyway, and what the discount is in roughly terms now. It's narrowed since we bought it. Uh, I think off the top of my head, it's probably trading on a sort of 12 or 13 discount, but um, it might be a percent or two either side. It was trading much wider than that earlier on. The yield is 6%, but the interesting thing is that the cover there is is significant. So that's a very well-covered dividend, where a lot of the other dividends you see are sort of 1, 1 1.1 times covered. I think for last year, I think it was something in the region 1.8, maybe next year 1.6 off the top of my mind. So either there will be a sort of change, a sort of capital event that gets involved in M&A, but if it doesn't, you're sat there collecting a 6% yield on deeply discounted assets. So, you know, it's an asymmetric sort of return. If nothing happens, you're getting a perfectly acceptable return. But if there is a takeover or merger or some kind of M&A which involves those assets, then the upside could be quite significant. Do you think there's a a structural advantage to uh, European renewable energy at the moment, in other words, relative to the UK in terms of regime? Or is it really just about the quality of the assets, not about the regime under which they're operating? I think it's a sort of brighter environment, but that's not the reason for buying it. It is the sort of structural situation and the demand for those assets. You mentioned the uh, Infrastructure Trust. They've derated, obviously, significantly because, as you say, their yields are really uh, not very attractive compared to uh, short-dated yields at least. What is the future for them? How are they going to uh, play this, do you think? Again, there has to be a sort of reduction in the oversupply situation. So mergers, buybacks, you know, more targeted marketing. It's really the same story across a lot of the new alternatives. Does it apply to commercial property as well? You do have some plays in the commercial property sector, but they tend to be rather exotic uh, by comparison <laughs> to some of the more regular commercial property trusts. I mean, they've got the same problem, obviously, rising yields. But I mean, I was looking, for example, at the results from Custodian, for example, which mm. is a specialist trust. They made the point they shot up over 12 months before, and now they shot down again at over 12 months. Mm. The volatility, but the earnings from their holdings are pretty robust. Is that ever going to be a sector that would uh, interest you at all? Well, we've got quite a few special situations in the area. We wouldn't asset allocate to it at the moment because rising interest rates is, is not great for property. But some of these discounts are, are quite extreme, so they're, they're probably some of them at the wrong price. But you know, we have things like Macau Property Opportunities, which is a fantastic sort of China opening play because it's been trying to liquidate for some years. But unfortunately, during COVID, the natural buyers, which are the Hong Kong Chinese, 
weren't able to go and inspect the properties and therefore, you know, weren't buying. It'd be interesting to see when we get the next announcement from them, whether they've been able to sell assets. And, you know, those shares trade on a significant discount. The discount, one way or the other, will evaporate because the trust is being liquidated. Either um, you get the share price back because they've sold way below carrying value, or if they sell close to carrying value, you get a significant uplift. We've got a, a, well, I say similar, real estate investors, which is a Birmingham specialist rather than a Macau specialist, Again, there, you know, we've seen North Atlantic Securities run by Christopher Mills building up what probably is an aggressive stake. You know, they've got eight percent. I mean, the shares trade, I think, around twenty nine thirty p. The the NAV, I think, was in the low sixties. They've been very successful at selling off a number of their properties in the last set of announcements. So, you know, we have special situations in the property sector, and we're a special situations fund, so we do have some exposure. But it's certainly not the case. We're sitting down here thinking, wouldn't property be a great asset class to invest in? It's more thinking. You know, the share price of particular situations is just wrong and is, is, is more than accounting for all the bad news. We've talked in the past quite a lot about private equity where you do have some positions and you've had some positions which are doing quite well, actually, not as badly as uh, some others. And also, uh, contrary to what uh, many people thought about the risks in private equity, uh, given how wide the discounts are. What have you been doing in that area, if anything, or are you just watching your uh, your flowers bloom a little bit? Yes, well, um, we've stuck with Oakley and we've stuck with NB Private Equity. You know, Oakley's obviously done fantastically well, NB Private Equity perfectly respectable. I mean, I think what's going on there, okay, there was concerns that NAVs have to come down, but when we had the excesses in 2021, things shot up fast and shot down fast. The process of valuing the NAVs of investment trust can be quite slow. So they were never written up because they'd gone up and gone down quite quickly. So the NAVs are probably not as vulnerable as, as people feared. The main structural thing is that now that um, the rules that came in, I think, at the back end of last June, where models and funds that invest in trusts, etc., have to declare or add the underlying costs to their own disclosures and their own product disclosures, a lot of advisors, wealth managers that have models, it's very difficult for them to own the, the private equity trust because particularly successful ones, the expenses are very, very high. We, we don't know exactly how many people are affected by that, but it wouldn't be surprising if you know maybe 15% of the register needed to get out because the disclosures were making their own products look expensive by actually owning any private equity investment trusts. That process, discounts will remain wide while those sellers are, are trying to get out. But at some point, maybe months rather than years, that structural selling will dry up because it doesn't affect all investors in private equity, just one class of investor. And so... I think the sector is perfectly capable of trading around a 15-20% discount in the not-too-distant future. We'll see whether that happens. And let's turn to the equity markets there. A couple of themes that are worth perhaps talking about. One is Japan, where the Japanese market has actually done well this year, as some of us were hoping. Your exposure is mainly through these activist trusts, Equine Active Value, which has done this deal with the Aberdeen Japan Trust. So that's a positive for you. Uh, have you been pleased or disappointed by the reaction to that deal? I think that um, people are obviously quite surprised, but I think it's a very healthy thing. And I think, you know, the, there's a lot of demand for these activist trusts. I mean, we bought into Nippon Active Value when there was a committed seller around and they were trading on an extremely wide discount. It was certainly not consensus when we bought the shares, but I'm, I'm beginning to feel consensus talking about Japan all of a sudden. I mean, every few years, people tell me that uh, Japan has changed. Uh, and I ignored these trusts initially, because once you've been told over sort of four decades that Japan's going to be different this time, and it never is. This is a period where perhaps experience is an impediment. 
But I think there is a position being reached where these activist trusts are actually making some headway, and partly because there's generational change in Japan. A lot of the locals don't want to take on the management of businesses or they don't want to take on the reins, and therefore a different way of carrying on and running businesses needs to be found. I still think if you're a US asset stripper, you'll, you'll get shown the door fairly quickly. But if you've come with pragmatic proposals, um, you're quite often getting a hearing, which has just not been the case up till fairly recently. And it's quite interesting the Japanese stock exchangers put out rules that uh, if you're trading below book, you have to explain. And you know, naming and shaming does work in Japan. Very much so. I mean, Nippon Active Value, notwithstanding the general point about Japan, do you think that's got the potential to get up to the kind of size where, you know, the 500 million mark? It's now, I think, gone up to about just over 200 million, something like that. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think, as I said, this is becoming sort of almost consensus thinking now. So um, if it becomes consensus thinking, then there's great scope to increase the size of the trust. We also own AVI, the Japanese um, activist fund as well. So, you know, they're very different in their approach. The other thing, of course, the Japanese currency continues to sell off because interest rates are still being kept to what look like very, very, very low levels compared to some of the big developed markets. Uh, That's got to change at some point, presumably. So then you might get an extra... Exactly, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's the last place you can get three money. So uh, when that changes, um, you would expect the yen to appreciate sharply. And that's a great move for um, sterling-based investors. So in terms of looking through your portfolio, what sort of activity have you been doing in the last three months, say? that you can talk about, obviously. Well, I mean, we talked about Aquila. There are three others, similar things that I'm, I'm trying to buy. We've picked up quite a few shares, but despite a lot of these trusts languishing wide discounts, they're not always easy to actually pick up the shares. So the advantage of running a fund is that, you know, if we just get 25 grand's worth on a particular day, we can just add it to the stockpile, where if you're an advisor, you have to split it across all your clients. So if you've got 25 grand's worth, you might have to share it amongst 116 clients, which doesn't work terribly well. So we have a, an inbuilt advantage. And there are three situations there, similar to Aquila, where we're, we're trying to buy any shares that are, that are available in the market. So while I'm normally quite verbose, I'm keeping my mouth shut on those so that um, I don't drive the share prices against myself. Probably the most interesting development, and it's a second-hand life fund called Life Settlements. LSAA is the ticker. And they've been battling in a legal case for years um, in the States, which has just been completed. They've won, and they've been allowed to buy. A bit of the background was that you can either own a whole policy or you can own a fraction of the policy. And following this court case, they now own the whole of the policies that are in the underlying portfolio, which means that at some point they ought to be revalued because they're now worth a lot more than they have been in the past because you have control of the whole policy, not just a bit part shareholder. Also, the costs in this trust have been quite high because a small investment trust battling in in the US courts is is obviously going to be a very expensive occupation. Therefore, the costs are going to fall away significantly and that hopefully will provide some scope to up the dividend. And Obviously, it trades on a very wide discount before any move in the NAV. I'm quite hopeful of a, of a positive rise in the NAV following that court victory. So that's probably the most interesting thing or most exciting thing that's happened in the portfolio since I was last on. Frustratingly, our uranium stocks seem to be lagging the, the strong rise in uranium, but um, hopefully that won't last too long. I mean, Geiger counter has been a bit of a drag on the portfolio, which is bizarre given that in recent months the uranium price has gone from 48 to 57. I know the uranium is only probably about 10% of trade goes through the spot market. Most of it goes on long-term contracts, but definitely um, there seems to be some signs of life in the, in the value of the metal. So hopefully that'll follow through to Yellow Cake and, and Geiger Counter at some point. Can you tell us about JP Morgan India? That's a trust where I think you've taken some interest. 
Yeah. Investment trusts often trade on the track record of the vehicle, not who's running it at the moment. And JP Morgan India has been a, a disappointment for some time. I think around the end of September last year, they changed the managers. So far, so good. It's uh, significantly outperformed its benchmark. It's not done quite as well as some other trusts because it has a large cap bias where small as mids have been where the action has been. But what tends to happen after a year or two of decent performance and the discount will, will then reflect the current team rather than the previous team. The other thing is it has a sort of five-year window that if it underperforms over that period, it has to give 25% of the money back. And it's a long way into one of those periods and it will need to perform very strongly not to have to hand 25% of the money back in, in 2025. So you've managed to buy it at around 20 discount on a number of occasions. It's narrowed a little bit since since then. But, you know, there is every scope of getting 25% back at par in, in, in 2025. The discount is probably going to narrow anyway, assuming that performance carries on strongly. Yes, it's just an interesting situation. We think, you know, I think in the long term, India is going to be a, a successful market. Um, the only slight negative is it is quite an expensive market, but then it, it usually is. Yes, I was going to mention that. Stocks are often quite highly rated, which yeah. can be a bit of a headwind at times. Finally, I can't avoid talking about the UK equity market, this great country of ours, where you've obviously had an interest in some of the uh, micro cap and smaller cap mm. stocks, particularly, yeah. uh, I think you were bought into Rockwood Strategic and uh, you like those particular family of trusts in that particular mm. area, the kind of activist yeah. approach. They've done quite well, actually. Rockwood's done well, trading around par. Mm. Edition has sold off a bit. But um, what do you think the outlook for those uh, particular kind of stocks are? Well, again, I mean, it's sort of arbitrage opportunity because it's the lack of demand for the trust rather than, you know, the underlying businesses are, are struggling. And simplistically, the UK trades on a big discount to the world. Small and mid caps trade on a big discount to large caps. Micro caps trade on a big discount to mids and smallers. And when sentiment is dire like it is at the moment, you often get opportunities to buy a package of those on a 20% discount to those bombed out prices. So if you were to look at sort of a, a microcap fund, you quite often find that the PE is about eight. If you've just bought that on a 25% discount, you're buying a lot of decent businesses on a PE of six. And I think the earnings yield will be over 16. Again, as we were talking about renewables, this has a value in the real world. Maybe the you know, institutional investors and wealth managers are too big to actually invest in that area. And maybe we're in for a period of de-equitization. But those businesses have a, a real value, which is way higher than the NAV, let alone what you've actually paid for in, in share prices. We do educate our shareholders to, we watch paint dry for long periods of time. And, and UK small caps is probably a paint drying situation. Although it's one I'm reviewing at the moment, and we probably want, might nibble a bit more as things have derated again. So yeah, as it's watching paint dry until it isn't. And, uh, you know, at some point you get these violent moves. And you know, as you've seen in MyGo's performance, it tends to be quite lumpy. You have these explosive periods which do tend to follow situations where discounts have become incredibly wide like they are at the moment. Right. And so um, obviously uh, the last 12 months have been a bit disappointing in that sense, as you say. I think your shares are down around 10%, something like that. But uh, you're waiting for the next explosion. I like that. Yes. <laughs> I like that analogy. You've laid yes, the dynamite. You're just waiting for the explosion to happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The ingredients or the, or the foundations of, of the next run tend to come from a period where you do have extreme discounts like we have at the moment. And at the end of the day, if you get a narrowing discount and a rising NAV, that is a very, very powerful combination. Indeed it is. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Nick, for giving us that update. Uh, always good to talk to you. And well, let's hope that... Uh, the detonation is not far away. Let's put it that way. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, talking to you again soon, by which time we'll know more about the future of your trust as well. So that's uh, all good news. Thanks Brilliant. so much. My pleasure. Many thanks.
Well, it's a real pleasure this week to catch up with an old colleague of mine, uh, Merrin Somerset Webb, who for more than 20 years was editor of Money Week, the very successful financial magazine, acquired reading for investors because of Merrin's contributions and mine occasionally. And then uh, also she's now become a columnist and podcaster for Bloomberg, the big American uh, financial news analysis service. So my first question to you, Merrin, before we dive into the subject of investment trusts and the markets would be, how are you enjoying working for Bloomberg after 22 years of running a specialist financial magazine? Well, I like it very much, actually. 22 years of Money Week, 17 years as a columnist at the FT. And now I'm at uh, Bloomberg, where I have this uh, weekly column, which is great. I can write about anything I like. And I don't have to edit a magazine or manage a pile of people, which is quite relaxing. And then I have a podcast called Merrin Talks Money, where I just get to interview interesting people and talk about where I like. So, you know, tremendous freedom. I know it's, it's great. I'm enjoying it enormously. Thank you. Well, that's very good to hear. Now, we want to talk about Investor Trust because my podcast mainly features Investor Trust and the markets. You live in Edinburgh, which is one of the homes of the Investment Trust industry. The uh, home of the Investment Trust industry. Well, as you know, that's Dundee, isn't it? I think Dundee has a claim as well. But anyway, somewhere north of the border in the rarefied atmosphere of, of Edinburgh. And you've been Director of Investment Trusts, and you've written about them a lot, and you know a lot about them. Tell me, first of all, then, what do you think about the investment trust sector? It's going through a tough time at the moment. Discounts are very, have widened a lot. A number of trusts are consolidating or going out being wound up. Is that a cause of concern for investors, or is it just the way that investment trusts normally work? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that, as you know, I'm a huge fan of investment trusts. I'm a great fan of the structure. I love the permanency of the capital inside investment trusts. I love the fact that they have uh, boards of directors because I think that's an incredibly useful thing to have, particularly as the trust. And I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute. It's shift from having mostly institutional ownership to mostly retail ownership. But having those directors there to support private investors is incredibly important. So there's all sorts of reasons why I think that the investment trust industry is A, excellent, and B, very important to the retail investor in particular. Now, as for right now, I mean, the investment trust industry has been through these cycles over and over and over. I don't have many cycles of discounts getting to lows you've seen in your career, but between the two of us, we've seen quite a lot of them, right? And they simply reflect what's happening in the market, and that gives us valuable signals apart from anything else. If you've bought into the investment and trust industry and you've done into an investment trust and you've done it with an eye to the long term and a belief that the assets inside that trust are valuable for the long term, then it shouldn't make much difference to you what the discount is at any particular time. And of course, you get wonderful signals from those discounts as well, signals that perhaps the NAV is not correctly calculated or you don't believe it's correctly calculated, signals about uh, expenses being too high, perhaps in some cases, signals about the market's expectations of the performance of the assets in those trusts over the long term. So those signals are also incredibly valuable. And if you believe those signals are telling the market something that is wrong, then you've also got an unbelievably good investment opportunity. Right. So there's a lot of information in the prices of investment trusts, but there are also some structural issues, aren't there? I mean, we keep on reading about how the wealth manager industry or stockbrokers, as we used to call them, have been consolidating and they're getting bigger and bigger and the regulators are telling them how they've got to invest the same portfolio of everybody. And that source of demand is diminishing. So uh, that might be a kind of technical reason why those price signals may not be as correct as always. What are your thoughts about that? Maybe larger than they've been in the past. So I think it's, I mean, I do think this is a real problem. And, uh, you know, as you said before, I sit on a couple of investment trust boards. And so I've seen this developing as you have 
over the last 10, 15 years. There was a time when we used to say, well, the investment trust has to be, has to be worth at least £150 million for it to be interesting for the wealth managers. And then it moved up to 350 And then people started saying, well, you know, 400 million, 450 million. And now you have people saying, well, we wouldn't be able to look at it unless it was 800 million. So that boundary keeps moving and moving and moving. So we're in a period of transition. And it is true that those smaller trusts, and there are an awful lot of them, by the way. I mean, there are not very many giant trusts. Once you get over a billion, you're not talking about that much of the market. Most of it is much smaller. So if those big buyers can no longer get into those smaller trusts, of course, it's going to make the discounts bigger. And there are quite a few trusts where you could easily make a case for them having to merge with other trusts to bring up their size, et cetera, make them of more interest to the market. But we shouldn't dismiss the way this market is changing. When I started on investment trust, you know, almost all you ran your eye down the shareholder list and nearly everybody there was one of the big wealth managers or a name that you recognize from the wealth management community. Now, when you look at those lists, at the top of most of the trusts and particularly at the top of most of the smaller trusts, you see Interact Your Investor. Hargreaves lands down, AJ Bell, etc. And that tells us that this massive shift from the wealth management industry holding these trusts to the private investor holding these trusts. And I think that's a hugely positive development. And I also think it's one that's going to run and run and run as the private investor grows in knowledge and grows in wealth. You know, one of the huge changes that we've had over the last couple of years is this shift in pension savings. And auto-enrollment is something that most people really don't think about very much. They don't take on board the fact that pretty much everybody in work in the UK now is a shareholder, one way or another. Now, most of those people are going to continue to hold the assets that they build up through their auto-enrollment pension with the big houses. They're going to keep them with a Viva or LNG, whatever it is. And they're probably never going to get around to buying a smaller investor trust. But there's also a big cohort of people who gradually, bit by bit, will take full responsibility for their finances. And with the annuity industry, all but dead, they're coming back a bit, by the way, it's also quite interesting. Those people into their retirement, this is the kind of stuff they're going to want to hold if they're going to manage their own portfolios. So there's a vast new market for the smaller investment trust and the medium-sized investment trust that we shouldn't discount. You know, the wealth managers, they're not everything. They're not the whole market. There's an awful lot of people out there doing this themselves. And there's also still a reasonable number of smaller wealth managers, they may disappear, I don't know, who are capable of buying these smaller trusts for their clients. So I don't think we should discount the small investment trusts just because the wealth managers can't buy them right now, because this is very much a market of flux. Well, I couldn't agree with you more about that. And of course, the other point is that uh, many of today's big investment trusts did actually start out as small investment trusts. And if you've got a niche strategy, at least, not a kind of general equity market or alternative asset uh, strategy, if you've got a little niche, something like an Odyssean or a Rockwood or something like that, that has potential still to grow, even in a market where the big boys, the big institutional buyers are not playing. The issue there might be more about why is it so difficult to launch an investment trust these days, rather than uh, worrying too much about the fact that size is seen to be everything for many yeah, observers. Well, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. And one of the great things about the investment trust market is it can give the retail investor, and you and I care mostly about the retail investor, don't we? It can give the retail investor access to asset classes they're not going to get access to anywhere else. I mean, one of the reasons why, of course, Scottish Mortgage became so phenomenally successful was because gave ordinary investors access, effectively, to the private equity industry at what looked like a very low cost. So, you know, management fee on Scottish mortgage is extremely low because it is so vast. And through that, 
ordinary people could get access to these astounding sounding companies at a very low price. Of course, the price turned out to be quite high in the end because they overpaid for lots of this stuff and you've seen that share price come off massively. And it sits at a, what is it, about a 20% discount at the moment, Scottish mortgage still? 20% which plus, yeah. tells you, or tells me anyway, that whoever the buyers or sellers are, the discounts on investment trust, they may be about uh, wealth management size, they may be about this, they may be about that, but they're mainly about performance. Scottish mortgage traded a premium when it performed brilliantly. Now it's performed absolutely appallingly for quite a long time. It's at a massive discount. Indeed. Sitting in Edinburgh, I mean, the, the Bailey Gifford story has been quite extraordinary. I mean, they moved into investment trusts a few years ago, partly because their uh, mainstream institutional pension fund business was uh, struggling a bit. And they were incredibly successful at picking up assets. And now they've obviously had a very bad period because their style is completely out of favour. What do you feel about that? Do you think that a, a firm that has basically across its investment trust range, with one exception, I think, a very clear style with this private equity exposure and its uh, long-term James Anderson philosophy. Will they be able to hold the line on that, do you think? Well, without changing their style? Yes. I think it would be incredibly dangerous for Bailey Gifford to change their style. I mean, their reputation is built on being phenomenal growth investors. And what has happened over the last couple of years doesn't tell us anything about how good they are at finding brilliant companies. What it tells us is they have a little bit to learn about the price you pay for those brilliant companies. And I suspect that's a lesson that is now shot through every partner's meeting at Bailey Gifford. So what will they change from here? I, I don't know, but I would guess that what they're changing from here is how they discuss with their fund managers the price that one should pay for a company, however brilliant it is. And one thing that you hear from younger fund managers all the time at the moment, I'm sure you've heard this as well, getting less because, you know, the learning is continuing. But last year I heard a lot from fund managers about I can't understand it. The company that I bought is doing exactly what I thought it was going to do. All the numbers are just what I forecast. It's absolutely brilliant. This is a great company. So why is its price falling? Why is its share price falling? The answer, of course, being because you paid too much for it, however brilliant it is. It can perform in exactly the way you thought it would, but it can still be overpriced. And I think, you know, that's a lesson that a lot of people who've lived through extraordinary 30 years of falling interest rates and falling inflation are having to learn fresh. Yes, we need to adapt to a new way of living in this new investment world, that is for sure. Well, actually, it's the, it's the old investment world, isn't it? Well, we're heading back towards a version of the old investment world, that's for sure. I suppose one of the ironies is that uh, the investment trust structure has this great advantage that it can issue shares at a premium and it can mm-hmm. also trade at a discount. But when the shares do trade at a premium, the temptation to go on investing all that money in order to, to issue more shares, in order to uh, get that premium down and earn more fees for the management company, that that does force you in some cases to pay too much for things. And that may be part of what happened, don't you think? Yes. I mean, it's all part of the momentum thing, isn't it? You're at a premium, your strategy is working, you issue more shares, you get more money, you put more money into those shares, they go up, you go more to a premium and round and round and round we go. And of course, it's incredibly tempting to do exactly that. And particularly in the scenario that we were just talking about, when you you need to get up or you feel you need to get up towards a billion if you want to keep your liquidity on the go and keep the wealth managers interested in you. So you get this opportunity and it feels like a one-off, doesn't it, when you're trading at a two, three, four, five percent premium, this ability to grow yourself and get yourself up to that level. But of course, then you get caught in this cycle where if you are effectively benefiting from momentum of the markets, when it turns you back where you started. And worse, you're back at a discount and now you have to buy it all back again. Because if you've issued the market appears to believe you have a moral imperative to buy back. And I suppose you do. 
But as you say, as you've been a director of a number of investment trusts, as have I, it is interesting, you know, what is the role of the board in these circumstances? You are there to look after shareholders' interests, but in many cases, you're faced with the fact that the fund management company that you've employed may be a very large institution. It may have a very forceful advocate, as uh, Scottish Mortgage did, to put it mildly, with James Anderson. You've got to be pretty tough to stand up to the pressure to grow assets, even when that isn't the right thing to do quite apart from whether or not the incentives are right. And we saw that with Chrysis and so on, where that was a shocking example of the incentives not being right. So the investment trust boards, you know, corporate governance is held up to be one of the great strengths. Do you think that investment trust boards do do a good job overall? I think they're getting tougher. When I started all those years ago, there was more of a feeling that, you know, one just sat there and the uh, fund management company was pretty much it was right. But over the last 15 years or so, I've definitely seen boards being very significantly more aware of their responsibilities and tougher with the fund management companies. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, you know, for the fund management companies that run all different types of funds and have an investment trust business, very hard for them to look at the trust. Maybe they've got an open-ended fund doing the same kind of thing. On the open-ended fund, you know, that really belongs to them. That's theirs. Anything to do with the strategy, anything to do with the admin and organization, that's them. And on the other side, you've got this trust maybe doing something very similar, possibly even identical. And then it's not yours. It belongs to somebody else altogether, belongs to the market. And you've got this rather irritating group of know-it-alls being the directors and telling you what they think. When in fact, as far as the, uh, you know, as the fund management company, you know best. You know, this is your job. This is your thing. And these people, who are they? But they do have the power. And it's very important for the fund management companies to remember that as well, or you end up with sort of rather distressing mini conflicts. But I do think that on both sides, recognition has grown. I'd be interested to know how you feel about this as well, actually. But I've seen this recognition growing, that it is the directors who have the power. And also, the more you see in the way of mergers, acquisitions, shift inside the sector, the more it becomes obvious that these are decisions that the directors make. Did you have that feeling as well over the last decade? Definitely so. I mean, 20 years ago, we had the capital trust scandal in the investment trust sector. And a lot of that was down to the fact that the boards and the managers were pretty much sort of joined at the hip, shall we say, and allowed things to happen that really should never have happened if they were doing their fiduciary duty uh, as they should be. A lot of them were appointed on the old boy network rather than perhaps on merit, shall we say. So yeah, I absolutely agree about that. I mean, I have to ask you this. There are now a lot more women on boards of investment trusts. And there's an increasing number of female fund managers as well coming to the top, as it were. I think you're an advocate for more women on boards. Do you think that may be part of the reason that corporate governance is getting better? Can we go as far as saying that? I'm an advocate for good boards, not for anything else. I mean, obviously, I'd I'd like women to be successful, and I'm pleased to see women having opportunities, and I'm pleased to see equality on boards, etc. But I'm not actually particularly interested in the ratio of men to women on any given board. I'd just like to see a good board. Box ticking is not a great way forward. It doesn't really work for me. So is it women on boards that have improved matters? Maybe. I don't know. Too early to tell, isn't it? We'll give it a couple more cycles and see. It's certainly too early to tell, that's for sure. But there's definitely a trend that's happening, so we can at least measure that and see. But there's so many other factors involved, of course. Yeah. Um, Uh, We were talking about discounts and discount management. One of the things that I tend to think, I've previously always thought, is that it's performance in the main that drives the discounts you perform well and and your discount will disappear. It doesn't always completely. And there are quite a few trusts that have these zero discount policies now, which which seems to work reasonably well. But there's one thing that I think is maybe better than that, which is the, um, I interviewed Tavis Williams the other day, you know, uh, my turn. And on the micro cap, they have an annual redemption 
guaranteed redemption for anybody. And that seems to work really well, rather than this constant buying back, constant buying back, which trusts do, which is a very time consuming. And uh, there's no evidence it really works, right? We don't know if it works or not. Your discount goes up and down and you think we spent all that money. Did it close the discount or did the discount close because of something else? Did it close because our fund manager was out doing some excellent marketing? Did it close because the market changed slightly? Did it close because somebody suddenly decided that uh, UK smaller caps are great and wrote some big reports about it? Who knows? We never know. But if you offer every year, a redemption, or even every few years. Uh, that, I think, is a very good way of keeping your discount within a reasonable level. I think that makes sense. Of course, the key thing about buybacks that people like Terry Smith have said for years is what really matters is whether, whether you're buying things at a good price or a bad price. And just because something's a discount doesn't necessarily mean that it's at a good price, as we know, particularly in the alternative sector. So that's certainly true. I imagine now there are quite strict rules about what you can invest in now that you're a Bloomberg columnist and maybe and there were before, of course, media restrictions as well. What has been your experience with investment trusts? And would you agree with me that the main challenge to investment trusts is not from open-ended funds, it's from passive funds, which you can buy very cheaply and you can use to construct a portfolio using ETFs or, or tracker funds or whatever it is. And they would have done you quite well over the last 18 months. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, you're right. I am entirely wrapped up in endless compliance. And this is my excuse for still being poor, Jonathan, is that uh, it's practically impossible for me to ever invest in anything because uh, anything you've ever mentioned, anything you write about, although I, I used to be, so I suppose, tied up in Money Week and the FT, so at least things are a bit simpler now. But yes, I mean, this is my main excuse for not being rich is, is compliance. I blame the regulations. Yeah, we can all do that. Absolutely. Um, um, but you're right. In that kind of environment, passive funds, ETFs, et cetera, they fall under much lighter compliance rules. So that would be easier for me. And it's certainly easier for a lot of smaller investors. The only thing I would say is that I think like you, I am a great believer against all the evidence in active investment. I'm a believer in stock picking. I'm a believer in the idea that a good active investor can outperform passive in the end. And I do think, although I'm I've said this all too often. I do think that we're moving into an environment where the stock picker should do pretty well, in particular in value markets such as the UK and Japan, emerging markets, etc. Possibly never in the US, but certainly in these markets where there should be brilliant opportunities for stock pickers at the moment. So I've always been prone to choose active over passive, incorrectly as it's turned out quite a long time. But now more so than ever, I would be inclined to choose active over passive. Yes. And so I'm interested to know what your experience is working at Bloomberg, which obviously is an American company, obviously a lot of UK employees. What do you guess they feel about the UK stock market at the moment? A very small part of the world index. The number of companies that are certainly in the 250 and the 350 and so on are affected by Brexit, some of them, maybe? What well, kind of feeling do you get? Bloomberg doesn't have investment views. Bloomberg doesn't recommend. Bloomberg is not anything like that. Bloomberg is a news organization. So I certainly couldn't tell you what Bloomberg thinks about uh, UK equities because I don't think that they have a view. That's not how it works. I can tell you what I think about UK equities, if you would like that. I certainly like that. And whether you think this whole argument about de-equitization and the regulatory of UK, does it, is it stopping companies listing here or staying here if they are listed? So there's well, two aspects of that. I hear over and over and over from companies and organizations that they don't want to list in the UK because of the burdensome regulation, because of the environmental regulation, the government's regulation, etc. That is very intense, with endless overlays, etc. And if anyone who sits on boards will, will know that know that the dealing with the regulation and the compliance is a, a large part of one's job these days. So is it true? Very possibly. But the other reason I am quite sure why companies say they don't want to list in the UK is because you can't get as rich doing that. 
you know, you get a lower valuation when you do list, uh, because we do know that even if you take out, for example, all of the uh, technology stuff and you rebalance between the markets, UK market is still trading at a 40% odd discount to the US. So list in the UK, you will get a lower valuation at the moment. And not only that, you'll be paid less. Well, if you manage to list in the US as a CEO and the top management team, your salary and your LTEPs, et cetera, will be way beyond what you could ever dare to dream of earning in the UK. So we can listen to a lot of people saying, oh, it's the regulations. Oh, it's the regulations. But tell you what, I bet it's the money. Right. But you also still think that there's value in the UK market. So there's a Massive bit of a tension there between the two. There is a tension there, but you know that's where the valuations are at the moment. But I think those valuations could and should change. There's, there is genuinely no particular reason why the UK should trade at such a massive discount to the US. And everyone behaves now as though this has always existed. The US has always traded at a massive premium to the UK. It's simply not true. This is a, a dynamic of the last couple of decades. That's it. It did not exist before that. There are hugely good quality companies listed in the UK, global companies that should have no UK discount attached to them, but still do. And smaller companies as well. Uh, you know, we have excellent small companies in every area of the market. Our technology sector is phenomenal, our resource sector, etc. There's a lot going on in the UK that is fantastic. There is no reason for us to be valued at this massive discount. There's some politics in there, of course. And I suppose politically, we haven't looked particularly stable over the last few years when uh, political stability is supposed to be one of our USPs. But Nonetheless, I don't think these valuations are justified. I do think there is a turn back towards looking for investments that are not as expensive as people have been prepared to buy over the last decade or so. So I think that uh, the UK and Japan in particular, these are places where there is genuine value. And if you were going to be looking to invest at the moment for the long term, those would be the markets I'd go for. But it might be quite a long term. That's the point. I mean, but you're right. You're, you it and I. It's long term. But yeah. you know, the wonderful thing about being a private investor, the amazing thing about being a private investor is that you have the long term in the main. I mean, depending on how old you are, of course. But, you know, fund managers are judged every six months, every year. I actually see interviewed a fund manager the other day. He said, oh, he said something about the long term. And, and so we don't really think about that because, you know, we're, we look at our six month numbers. And I was like, well, and there's the problem in a nutshell. Whereas us, we don't have to worry about that. No one's judging me every six months. Uh, no one's judging me every 12 months. No one's judging me every couple of years. All I have to do and all you have to do and all the ordinary retail investor has to do is find things that are good quality at reasonable prices, hopefully low prices, buy them and wait. We have this enormous luxury that the professional fund manager, Portia, doesn't have. Indeed. You're right about all of that. Uh, and you're managing for your own risk profile rather than uh, some other risk profile. But the problem is that uh, being human beings, we're still vulnerable to uh, behavioral characteristics, should we say. And if something we own goes down 30%, we tend to yeah. panic and we sell it. And then that's often the wrong time to do that. So it's actually very hard to do that. And uh, I think you need, uh, well, first of all, I guess you need some training to be able to train yourself not to overreact to things that happen out there. Or dare I say it, what you read in the media. Dare I say that? Don't say that. Don't right. dare. No, no, we're all on the side of the um, angels here. So final thought then, Merrin. Here you are sitting in your very powerful position, you know, to influence people. What would be your best bit of advice for private investors investing in investment trusts? I mean, stay the course is one thing, obviously. That's very important. Okay. How much turnover would you want to do in a year if you're an average investor looking? Very little, almost none. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to pay the money? Why would you want to pay the stamp duty? Why would you want to pay the, the dealing fees if you don't need to? You don't want to do that. Well, you might put a lot of other people out of work. That's the only consideration. <laughs> are we interested in other people? <laughs> people who are the service industry, people who are thriving on this whole matter. Don't need to worry. You'll still be paying your management fees. It's all fine. 
And particularly on those smaller investment trusts, your management fee is going to be quite high relative to the size of the trust. So you're still paying, don't worry. And this is the other interesting thing about investment trusts and shows again that the worth of directors and Billy Gifford were front and foremost with this, bringing in stepped fees. So the fees fall as the size of the trust grows. Uh, you know, that's pretty admirable stuff. Yeah, so it does work eventually. I mean, I think that's the main argument for the investment trust sector. There is a Darwinian process. It does work eventually. It certainly happens more quickly than it happens in the open-ended world. And long may it continue, I say. And of course, you have the AGMs, which, again, I think are absolutely fantastic. In an ideal world, I would force every open-ended fund to also have some kind of annual meeting when individual investors could turn up and shout at directors and the fund managers, hopefully not shout, but, you know, make their views known. I do think there's something wonderful about those big investment trust meetings. You know, I'm sure you go to them as well. I love them. Alliance Trust, Personal Assets. and, And, you know, who is not going to the Scottish Mortgage Annual Meeting coming up next week? There'll be some fun, I'm sure. Yeah, a lot of questions to be asked and a lot of questions to be asked. An opportunity to actually talk to directors and talk to the fund manager about how they're investing, what they're doing, what's gone wrong, why it's gone wrong, say what you want in terms of dividends, etc. This stuff is great. Well, people say, you know, well, what difference does it make if I turn up? My vote won't count for anything. All the proxies will be in. How would you answer that point? Your vote might make no difference, but your voice definitely will. It's absolutely true that the proxy organisation has got a lot of this stuff sewn up. But... A, that I hope that's short term. I hope, again, that's a dynamic that will change over the next four to five years. But also, if you stand up at an AGM, raise your hand and make a valuable point, there is no way that the directors are not hearing that. No way they're not listening to you. If you've made the effort to come, and you know, I know this because I've sat there as one of the directors over and over and over at these meetings. And when people stand up and say something that resonates, you hear it and you bear it in mind. And you also are constantly reminded that the group of people in that room represent the end investor, the person at the end of the chain. And I think that is incredibly valuable for fund managers in particular, because fund managers working in an institutional environment, I think they forget over and over again whose money it really is. Not their money, not their institution's money, doesn't even belong to the pension fund that is their client. None of those people, that's not their money. Money belongs to the individual who turns up an investment trust AGM. And I think that's one of the things that makes investment trust so valuable. The fund manager has to face off the individual investor. And maybe he lost 20% of their money last year. And he's kind of looking in the eye and explain why. Well, that's a great manifesto to put forward. Do you think the platforms are doing enough now? Are they starting to help people vote as well? Is that a positive development from your point of view? Absolutely. I mean, the platforms are really, really coming along here. You know, Interactive Investor was was first at this and really good at it. They started this system whereby you have to opt out of your voting rights rather than opt in, which is a great move. And the other platforms are now following. So I remember the days when you had to telephone your, your broker and ask for a letter and uh, then you had to pay £10. Do you remember when you had to pay your platform be allowed to go and vote and for heaven's sake. Those days are long, long gone. There is a full understanding at the platforms now that the end owner of the vote is the individual investor and, and we shouldn't have to pay or go for a part of admin to get that stuff. Now you just click a button and it's yours and uh, you can vote online or you can go along. So we've made huge leaps in shareholder democracy over the last, even the last 12 months. Very exciting. That's a very good note to end, Maren. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast and talking about these things and giving us your views. That was Maren Somerset Ware, columnist and podcaster for Bloomberg, was for more than 20 years editor of Money Week and author of a splendid book about shareholder capitalism as well, which I should mention in passing. 
Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.